This episode of the Fabulous Learning Nerds is sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTIs, counselor, and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Question. How do we go about getting the most, not only from our teams, but from ourselves as well? This is the question the nerds ponder with this week's guest, Brian Gillette. Brian is a former Silicon Valley human resource executive founder of his own leadership consulting business, and amateur ultra-endurance athlete. Now, Brian knows how to connect with both the business leader and the amateur athlete to help them reach their peak and achieve impossible results. The skills and the behavior, same. So join us as we'll be discussing reaching your peak and the key aspects to push yourself and your team further than you imagine. It's going to be a great episode. So let's get started. They are the fabulous learning nerds. Because if you're tired of the old ways of getting it done, you've got the fabulous learning nerds. Scott, Dan, and Abby are making it fun. The best ideas that you've ever heard. So everybody spread the word. They're going to keep you with turning. The fabulous learning nerds. Fabulous learning nerds. Oh, yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of your Fabulous Learning Nerds. I'm Scott Sheeter, your host. And with us this week, you love her, Abby Dawson. Abby. Hey, Scott. You know what I forgot to tell our audience? What's that? That you are the Duchess of Design. I, I forgot to tell the audience that you are the Duchess of Design. Well, I've always felt like that was a very generous title for me anyway. Um, so. It is a title that you've got, so you should like own it. You know what I'm saying? You should like totally own it. How have you been? Good. Good. Um, looking outside, it's like a gorgeous day. So I think we're going to take our sun and maybe go try not to fry ourselves at a pool. Try and get try outside. Try not to fry yourself at a pool. That's right. Well, being from Florida, I can tell you that at least the Florida sun is no joke at no. all. Like uh, SPF 1000, I think is what I wore. Um, and this is from a time and a guy that used to used to be a lifeguard. Did you know that? He used to be a lifeguard? I didn't. Back I'll in tell the you, 80s? I, I wonder what you think about this uh, resurgence of these mineral SPFs because I've been wearing them and I look like the crazy person with the white streaks all over my skin from the uh, mineral SPF that is coming back into popularity. If it keeps you from frying, it's great. Because we were the idiots in the 80s that wore baby oil. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> I wore baby. Folks, don't wear baby oil when you're going in the sun. That's all I'm telling you. We're a little wiser now. Um, we're all going to get a whole lot wiser because we have a very special guest with us today. Um, we've got some amazing things to talk about. And we're going to learn. I bet he knows a lot about sunscreen, too. 
<laughs> let's not make this show all about sunscreen. We're going to get to know all about Brian in a little segment that we call What's Your Deal? Hey, man. What's your deal? Brian. Hey, Scott. Hey, Abby. It's good to be on here. <laughs> What's your deal? Well, uh, my deal is not sunscreen. I'll tell you that. Um, I, I use... <laughs> <laughs> I, I do use a lot. If, if if your listeners could see, I am not the most, uh, I'm not the darkest uh, person. So I, I try to use as much sunscreen. But uh, first of all, I love your jingle. You guys have a Thank great you. jingle. It uh, it just uh, it resonates in my my ear. So uh, my my deal, and I, I like the question because I think everybody should be able to answer this question to kind of really think about what's important. I've always been in, in, interested in human potential. And and kind of pushing oneself uh, further, you know, learning new things. You know, I love adventures and trying new adventures. And and for much of my life, I've I've always liked to have one big challenge per year that I focused on. You know, at uh, undergraduate, I studied organizational behavior, and I was fascinated you know, with the workings of how people and teams and and uh, systems works. And and that might have been why I went into uh, into learning and development. Um, so the the best advice I got early on in my career, this back early '90s, and I was thinking about going more into L and D, and and I wasn't at the time, but I was talking to somebody that was, and they said, "Go out and manage people," um, before you kind of go into learning and development. I thought, you know, it, it seems so basic now. It's like, okay, manage, you know, get get, get some practical experience before you go in and, and start teaching. And so I went in, I was managing a, a customer uh, service center and eventually managed a team of a couple hundred people and, um, and, and then went into learning and development and um, went into a couple technology companies and started up a few learning and development or leadership development programs um, and just really liked it. Um, and then continue to kind of get dabble into different parts of HR, um, uh, doing stuff on M&A, doing um, eventually a vice president of human resources, and then started my own consulting practice uh, almost 10 years ago to the day. So that's my deal. So with that, we're going to go ahead and save ourselves by diving into the topic of the week. Okay, so stretching yourself and your teams to achieve extraordinary results. That's what we're going to be talking about today with Brian. Brian, you've got this thing. It's called Epic Performance. I would really like to start there. Could you help our audience understand Epic Performance, what it stands for and what it means to you? Yeah, no. So I, I've always, as I mentioned, always been fascinating and kind of pushing yourself further. And... And so I had done, I'm, I'm an ultra distance athlete. So I've done a lot of long distance run, a lot of long distance cycling. And, and I've always wanted to understand how is it I get to the finish line? Um, I also wanted to understand how do other people kind of get to the finish line after a long, big challenge, whether it is a run, whether it's starting your own business. And so I went out and I interviewed a hundred executives and other ultra distance athletes. Um, so 75 were executives, kind of C-level folks, CIOs, CEOs, founders of companies, and then ultra distance athletes, because there's a lot of similarities between what a, an executive does to get to the top of his or her game versus what, and compared to what a ultra distance athlete or any athlete does. 
And I interviewed them, find out what is it, what are the kind of capabilities, what are the behaviors they demonstrate, and how do they do that? And that's where Epic Performance came. And, and what it stands for, the E stands for how do you envision the big things in life that you want to accomplish? You know, it's in life, it's in career, it's whatever, but how do you, how do you look out a lot further? The P is how do you put a plan in place to get there? You know, what are the steps? The I is how do you iterate to that plan? You know, you don't start off running a marathon. You start off running a 5K and then a, a 10K and then you go to a half and then you go to a marathon and you kind of work your, work your way up. You don't start off as the vice president of learning and development. You know, while we would all like to, and I know there's a lot of folks coming out of college, it's like, yeah, I'm going to be the vice president next year. Um, you don't start off there. So iterate, how do you work your way up and then collaborate with others? Fundamentally, there's nothing really new out there. There's, there's different flavors, but you know, most of the stuff has been done or something similar has been done. And, and so how do you collaborate with others to learn from them, learn their, from their successes and learn from their failures? And then lastly, how do you go out and perform it? So that's the epic performance model. And the performance is, you know, you, you, I always liken is the EPIC, that gets you to the start line. And then the performance is getting from the start line to the finish line. I'm fascinated to know, Brian, you said you interviewed athletes and you interviewed um, professionals. Did Were they aware that they had accomplished these like milestones, so to say, the EPIC? Or was there one group that could see it a little more clearly than the other? What was what was really interesting to me, Abby, is I when I went and contacted people. So I, I wanted to talk to a hundred people, and, and there's no magic reason why it was hundred. I thought just a hundred was a good number. I mean, I kind of fundamentally had a lot of the the key elements after about you know forty or so, but. I had put together a list of of the executives I knew, went out to them and and said, "Hey, here's what I'm looking to do. I want to I want to understand how kind of highly successful people have done really big things." And surprisingly, a lot of them said, "Well, why do you want to talk to me?" And, 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 and that <laughs> humbleness. That that was one of the I mean, that and then one other thing surprised me the most of how humble they were. And I said, "Well, you know, like I, I talked to, I talked to two people who had run seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. You know, that's, I, I consider that to be fairly impressive. I, I talked to a, a number of people who founded a company, some who then sold it for billions of dollars. And, and it's like, you don't know why I want to talk to you because you found this company and you sold it for a billion dollars. Um, so, and then, and then I started to kind of put together the different pieces um, not, nobody's good at all five areas of, of the epic performance, you know, but most of them were good at two or three and knew how to kind of fill in the blanks for the other two. It, it seems to me, and maybe I'm crazy for this, but like one of the things that always fascinated me about ultra athletes is I've gotten my my brother's kind of affiliated with it. So I've been learning about ultra athletes. So it's kind of interesting that that's the background you come from. I'm fascinated by it, but they're so good at planning. Um, and the really good athletes are good at sticking to their plan and adjusting creatively when they need to. Um, 
I wish I could see the same clarity in a path with work. And I think for some reason, it seems so much harder in a job environment, you know, a professional environment to have that same clarity. How do you help people kind of bridge that? Well, you know, I mean, the people that I talked to both on the athlete and the the business side that were really good were were very focused. And and so if you're if you're focused as an athlete, chances are you're going to be focused in in other areas. And so under the under each of those five pillars, E, P, I, C, and then perform, I have three behaviors. And and under the iterate is there's one called practice with intention. And and that's a lot of what you were what you're talking about, Abby. And 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 one of the ways you kind of, you just very clear on what you want to accomplish, and knowing what your end result is, and knowing your why. And, and so often it's like, why are we doing this? I I interviewed one guy who he was training for an Ironman, and you know, an Ironman it's 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 a swim, it's a bike, it's a run, and you know if if you're it's going to take you all day to do, you know, the fast people will do it in 12 hours and the slower people will do it in, you know, 18 hours or you know, so, but it's, it's an, it's an impressive result. And one of the guys I was talking to, he was out training and training's often the hardest part. Um, cause you got to get up day after day and go out and do it. And, and you know, there's one day he was just having a hard time. And he thought back, he goes, what, what kept him going is he thought of his uncle. And he said, you know, fundamentally, my uncle died on the couch. He just got too fat. He, you know, he had a sore back. He sat on the couch, got too fat, and just eventually died. He goes, I didn't want that to happen. And so he had this why that allowed him to go out and just regularly practice, practice, practice. And so it's, it's knowing that. And so how do you get that in your work as well? You know, what is that one thing that's driving you? One of the executives I talked to, in fact, I was just working with him um, a couple of days ago. I facilitate his executive retreat every year. And he was telling me, I interviewed him for the book and the stories in the book. Um, he was telling me, he goes, when I, was, when I was a kid, I saw my dad lose his job. And when he lost his job, he just kind of lost that that drive and that energy. And he goes, I never wanted that to happen to people around me or to me. And he's now in economic development. So he goes in, works in a community and helps build the community so jobs, you know, more jobs happen. And the, the community doesn't lose jobs. And so it's, it, he had that clear why of what was important to him. And so part of it is being able to find what's important to you. you know, how are you going to keep going? That's fascinating. I, and what I heard with both of those, it wasn't I wanted to win trophies. It was I don't want to die on the couch. And it wasn't I want to buy million-dollar homes. It's I don't ever want to feel like I don't have a passion for getting up every day. Um, so the goal, maybe not exactly what the vision it ends up being looking like. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and knowing what that is, you know, another woman I spoke to, she started up her own company and, and she, she went to her, her siblings to see if they would help fund it because she needed some funding to get going. And the, the, both of the, or I know two of the siblings said, you know, it's, it's a, it's a great idea, but it's never going to work. And 
And so her why was to prove her brother's wrong. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's it's whatever that is that keeps you going. It's like she goes, I just I gotta prove him wrong. She's the younger sibling, and it's like I've gotta show him I can do it. I gotta show him. So it's it's having it's having that purpose that keeps you going um, and allows you to get out and and, and train or practice on a regular basis because it's hard. Now you mentioned. Um some humility of the leaders that you spoke with, like, why are you talking to me? And I, I feel like that's an important qualification for leadership. Um, one that we all need to be working harder at, but aside from that, what are some of the interesting things that you discovered in your in interview process, um, that surprised you? What surprised you about the people you talked to? That humility was clearly one. Um, another one is, ah, when I when I set the goal to interview a hundred people, I thought, God, how many people am I going to have to ask in order to get a hundred interviews? How many times am I going to hear no? And I only heard no twice. What what surprised me? Um, every time when I would go out and I and I knew you know I I, I was connected to about sixty percent of the people where it's either I had worked with them or I had interacted with them somehow in my career over the course of time. And then the others were, and, and so I felt, you know, most of those would likely say yes. But I, I also, you know, some of them were fairly, you know, they're CEOs of companies. And, um, and then the other 40%, I thought, okay, that's going to be harder. Um, so I was surprised. And, and, and what it taught me, and, and intuitively, I know this, um, but it just reinforced is if you don't ask, the answer is going to be no. If you ask, there is a greater chance that the answer will be yes. And I think for much of my life, I had been hesitant to ask because I didn't want to hear the word no. And so that just, it's like, it, it, it shook me. It, it kind of, you know, shook me a little bit. It's like, you got, just go out and ask. Um, so I was surprised with the amount of people that said, oh yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, gladly I'll, I'll spend an hour with you. Um, and most people, you know, I said, you know, if I have other questions, can I call you up? Oh yeah, sure. No problem. Um, so, so that was, I mean, that was the other thing that surprised me. And, and you know, the other, another thing is how, how focused most of these people were and they knew how to prioritize what was important. So if they got 20 things that came across their desk and they knew they could only do three and they could quickly look and say, these are the three that I need to do. And I don't worry about the others. You know, one, one of the CEOs I spoke to, I, you know, I worked for him years ago and he, you know, we, every, every quarter we would do our quarterly MBOs, you know, we figure out, okay, what are, what are the three to five things that you're going to do? And he was sitting down with one of his executives and one of his executives came in and said, gave him a list of like 10 things. These are the 10 things I'm going to do in the quarter. And the CEO, Jeff, looked at him and said, okay, so what are, what are the three to five you're going to focus on? He's like, I'm going to do all 10. And it's like, okay, all right. Um, I'm only paying you on you accomplishing, you know, five. So what are the five you want me to pay you on? And that's, those are the ones. So they really knew how to prioritize and figure out what am I going to say yes to, but also 
what am I going to say no to? One of, one of the guys who he's a VP of HR for a, a mid-sized technology company. He, he's a, he, he was a professional referee for FIFA for years, uh, for many years. And then he also is an Ironman. And, and I, he was talking to me, I said, you know, so how do you, how do you balance all that out? He goes, you know, in order to train for an Ironman, you need about 12 hours a week. He goes, I can find 12 hours. And I just have to figure out what am I going to say yes to and what am I going to say no to? And then I find those 12 hours. And, and so those are the things that just, you know, most of those people are really, really good at. Yeah. I, I think about the stories about like CEOs who, who are amazing and they have, they have these rich personal lives and they have, they do these incredible sports things and people are like, they do everything. And I'm like, no, there's, there's a very specific list of things they're not doing so that they can do the things that they value most. Right. Um, and I think that story gets distorted a lot, that they want to hold people up and say, they're incredible. There's nothing they can't do. But they're being very um, specific in their they're choices. They're very deliberate. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you are going, and this is, this is what you know, you know, all these folks, if you're going to reach a certain level, you have to be very deliberate on what, how you're going to get there. I, I do not subscribe to the path of I'll just let kind of faith dri or fate drive where I'm going. You know, it's like, if you want to go over there, then focus on going over there. Um, you know, you, you look at any pilot, a pilot doesn't just get into the airplane and say, okay, let's see which way the wind is blowing. No, they, they deliberately say, hey, I'm going to go to Nashville, Tennessee today. Now, sometimes they may be a little bit off course, but you know, because the wind blew them off course, but they course correct and they get back on course. And eventually, hopefully, they land in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, but they're very deliberate on on where they want to go. And and the other thing is, I mean, there's a lot of talk about work life balance. And, you know, I think everybody would, you know, if you ask, would you like a work life balance? Most people are gonna say yes. Um to get to a certain level, you may not have a, a good work-life balance um, for a short time. You may be on a long term, you can, but you, you can't push and push and push and push and expect that everything's going to be balanced. Um, and so that's, I know that sometimes that's not the popular message, um, but you look at a lot of the people that are at the top of their game and they had to give up other aspects of their life. I'm so glad you brought that up because there was something else I was going <laughs> to ask you about is the folks who, who make these big accomplishments, either they're ready to suffer or they're just really good at it, but most of them are not doing it alone. And so how are they doing that with their team? Are they preparing their team to say, we're going to go through some hard times? And how are they, when they're in the midst of it, chugging along with themselves and their team? Yeah, I mean, that's the whole collaborate part of the epic performance. It's, you know, how are you, how are you kind of learning from others? How are you getting others involved? Um, it goes back to what we started talking about. How are they clear on why we're doing this? You know, a lot, I, I, I'm, I'm teaching a, a leadership class for a, a fairly large tech, uh, technology company, a name you would have know, would know. And we talk about giving when you know if you're managing or leading folks give that giving give them that that reason why are we doing this 
you know, it helps to put it in perspective. You know, it, it goes back to that person who didn't want to die on the couch. It's like the reason we're doing this is because and, you know, he needed a team of people around him um, in order for him to train. He needed the support of his his wife and his family. And so they knew that and they were supportive of, of something like that. I worked uh, I worked for a, a technology company and it was it was a, a software company that focused on speeding up the um, approval uh, for FDA approval process. So when, when, if you want to get something approved through the FDA, you have to run a whole bunch of documents that go through all these processes and it looks at everything and it, and it may take years to do that. Um, or, or, you know, any big organization that has a large approval process and, and our software allowed, allowed for it to kind of manage that flow of information. We were a software company. But the founder of the company, he would say, he goes, the reason I started this is because I wanted to help cure cancer. He's, he has no medical background whatsoever. But his contribution to, to uh, solving the cancer problem was being able to speed up the approval process through the FDA. And so that's how he got, he got involved. And, and so it, it could make it better. And so we all knew that in the company. And so we all drove to that. So, you know, how do you look a little bit higher up to understand, you know, why, why, why are we doing this? Yeah, I love this idea of making sure that people understand your vision. Envisioning is hard work, right? Um, especially from a leadership perspective, like visioning it should take several hours of your week. Am I clear? Am I going in the right direction? But I also have to be focused in on, you know, creating, building, and strengthening high-performance teams, which means that, in my experience, um, I got to, at some point in time, empower them to make decisions and trust that they're going to, you know, take ownership in those decisions so I can stay focused on the things that are going to drive me and the organization or whatever that mission that I have forward. And I think a lot of folks, unfortunately, especially in corporate America, um, I, I got to control everything. You know, I'm, I'm at this level, so I got to control everything. And I really feel like that's where a lot of failure happens. Those people who try to control everything end up controlling nothing. Yeah, and it, and it, it works better when you're kind of, uh, you know, you're the individual contributor and you're working on one project. You can, you can control your component. But yeah, when you get higher up in the organization, it's harder to do that. I mean, I think the other thing, um, and I don't know that we spend a, enough time to talk about this in leadership development, is there is no ideal leader. You know, there, you, they, there, there's so many. If I were to ask you, it's like, hey, Scott, you know, what are the what are the key elements of leadership? Give me three. And then I were to ask Abby, you know, chances are they would be different. Um, you guys have worked together, so maybe they'd be a little bit closer. And then if I'd go ask your uh, your other uh, um, partner, David, and say, David, what are what are your three? You know, they they would be different. You know, I spend most of my time talking about leadership, and I I couldn't give you a great example, but uh, or a great uh, definition because it is so different. But what I've learned is a good leader can figure out what's needed at the time. You know, you you look at somebody like Elon Musk, and you know he's he, he's a unique guy. 
<laughs> and there would be a lot of people with, that would say he's a, he's a he's a terrible leader. But what he's really good at is envisioning the big things and getting people that out there. And if you took if you took some of those out of him, you know, you wouldn't have Tesla. You wouldn't have you know rockets going up to uh, space. And so, a, a good leader knows what their skills are, and they can compensate for the things they don't have. And that's why I look when I look at Epic, you know, there isn't nobody was good at all five. You know, they were good. And and one of the the best CEO I ever worked with, um, I worked for. He was the first guy I interviewed, and and so I was asking. I said, "When you when you look at the different elements, I mean, where are you where are you best?" And he goes, "You know, I'm I'm really good at planning, and I'm really good at uh, kind of the iterating, but I'm I'm not good at the strategic part. But I relied on somebody to help me with the strategy." And then I would talk to somebody else, he goes, and they would say something completely opposite. I'm really good at envisioning and be able to think big, but I'm, I'm not good at, at planning. But I, I knew somebody and I would hire people that could fill in that gap. And so that's with, with Epic Performance, it's you're not going to be good at all five. It makes me think about triathlons. You mentioned earlier the, the grind of them. A lot of triathletes I've met have all echoed the same thing to me is that the swim is the weakest and it's like the weakest for everybody. Um, but none of them stopped doing triathlons because they weren't strong in the swim. Um, and some of them were, were okay at the swim, but they just excelled at everything else. And it didn't seem to diminish their passion for what they were trying to do. Um, and even if they weren't good at the swim, some of them didn't hate the swim. They still enjoyed it. They were like, oh, I'm kind of crummy, but you know. They liked the training of it or or it was just kind of like fun to be in open water. Um, so it's interesting to me that we have this just uh, fear of being bad at something, but it doesn't have to hold you back. And just because something's not your strength doesn't mean you can't um, try to be better at it, try to develop and certainly not be open to acknowledging it. Yeah, and you know, it, it, I love the, the the analogy with the uh, swimming. Um, my my wife is an Ironman, and swimming is her strongest part. Um, swimming often isn't the strongest part. You want your biking or running to be the strongest part because that's where you spend the most amount of time. So, if you can get a little bit better at the swim, you may take off two or three minutes. If you can get a little bit better at the bike ride, you can take off twenty minutes. So. It's it's better to be better at the you know at the at the biking, um, but and this applies to you know leadership is you have to have a base level in order to compete. So you know you can't you have to know how to swim to do an Ironman. You don't have to be a phenomenal swimmer because if you if you don't know how to swim, you're not going to be able to make it to the second leg of the of the race, which is the bike. You're going to drown. So that's not good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's not you know, good. <laughs> even like with, with the example I used uh, with the CEO, you know, he's not good at strategy. He's got a base level in order to get him. Um, he knows how to hire somebody that can be good at strategy. And, and you know, one of the uh, one of the uh, the other uh, good good input I got early on in my career, I was trying to figure out: Do I get my master's like an MBA? Or do I go and get my uh, like a master's in organizational development or something, you know, learning and development related? 
And and the guy I spoke to, he said, if you're going to be working with leaders, then I would recommend you get your MBA because you have a good sense of finance, of marketing, you know, of, of kind of all the different elements that make up a business. So I am not a good, I'm not uh, the strongest marketer. I'm not the strongest um, finance person, but I have enough knowledge that I can talk about it. And so I know where I'm really good and where it's like, okay, I have a baseline. So it kind of goes to your example, Abby. It's like, you don't have to be a great swimmer, um, but you have to have a baseline. And then what do you have to do? Don't be afraid to go into the water. Um, you know, you're, you're going to be fine, but you got to get that baseline. That's the best justification I think I've ever heard for getting an MBA. Honestly, um, I know a couple of people who are really passionate and have their MBAs because they were love business, wanted to run businesses, be entrepreneurs. But I know a lot more people who have MBAs who I was like, why? Why do you have an MBA? <laughs> but maybe that's why. That's a great. That's a great justification. Yeah, I mean, it was. It, it was it, when he told when he sat down, and I was I was twenty two at the time, and I I, I knew I'd, I'd get a master's, um, and I was kind of going down the yeah, master's in organizational de development or behavior and. And he said, no, this is, you know, a, a, an executive, what they need is they need you to be able, or you will need to be able to talk about their business and understand their business. And, and so it's given me credibility. It's allowed me to be more successful in working with somebody because I'm not just, I, I don't know just about organizational behavior. It's like, okay, I can understand a little bit about finance and how, how marketing works. And You know, going back to the book, you talk um, a lot about this idea of risk management. Um, talk, if you could share with us, you know, how leaders can encourage more risk taking, because I feel like you, we, we all can say, well, I like to take risks, but I really feel like most of us don't like change and are kind of risk averse. Um, that's my experience, but talk to us a little bit about how we can encourage and develop a little more risk taking within, uh, organizations and teams. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure if, you know, I've always been hesitant to say most of us don't like change. I think most of us don't like change that we don't like the change, you know. So if I, I've done, if I were to come to you and say, hey, Scott, I'm going to I'm gonna give you a 15% increase in your salary, you know, that's a change. Yeah, your, your thumbs up. I like that um, because that's good. Um, so you like that type of change. Um, so. I was working, I was working with a Fortune 100 company um, and working with the, the, the top finance folks in the organization. And we were talking about risk and they were, they were kind of one of the biggest names in their industry. And then there was another company that was pretty small, take a lot of risk and was was kind of starting to grow. And, and at the time, it was like, is this company going to make it or are they going to fail? The kind of the, the risky company. And as I was talking to this very stable organization and to the, the CFO and probably about 20 people in the room, I said, one of the things you might want to look at is where are you taking more risk in your business? Um, because you've got these, got these competitors, you know, there's always going to be some, some company that's trying to kind of come up with something really innovative and, and take you out. And if you're the big behemoth, you have, in many cases, the capital in order to put some aside and, and take some risk where those other companies, 
you know, they don't have it. And so I was talking, talking about the organization and, and the CFO, and, and I, I wish I was making this up, um, but the CFO says, you know, Brian, I, I really do encourage people to take risk, but what I want them to do is really analyze all the different factors and then make a sound financial decision with that risk. And, and as I was listening to him and I, I, I kind of, you know, sometimes as a consultant, you have to say things that people don't want to hear. And I said, you know, that's not risk. You know, risk isn't measuring all of the financial, all the different uh, permutations of what could happen, assessing all this, you know, the, the strengths and of, of what could happen, looking at the downside that by the time you get to there, it's going to be too late. This other company is going to come over and take, uh, you kind of take over the industry. And surprisingly, that other company did. So, you know, one of the things I like to get people to think a little bit bigger and push themselves into that uncomfort zone. And, and that, that kind of starts to tell where you're taking, taking risk. One of the organizations I was working with, you know, in the last year, we were putting together their strategic plan. And, you know, early, you know, early in the day, we had kind of a baseline. It's up on the wall. You guys, you know, you've got, got it all up on the flip chart. And I look back up at it and I ask, I asked the kind of the leadership team, I said, does what's up here, you know, how confident are you that you can do it? And they, they all kind of looked at me and said, yeah, I feel fairly confident. I said, okay. I said, does it make you nervous? And they just kind of nodded their head. No, it doesn't, doesn't make me nervous. And I said, it's, it's probably not big enough. You know, if you look at that list and you think, oh man, this is, this is going to be hard. I, I don't know if we can do it. Um, I'm a little bit nervous. That is probably at the point where you're making the right call. And maybe not for everything, um, but for part of your business or part of your goals, you know, take one of those goals and, 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 and do you look at it and say, yeah, that, that makes me nervous. It's like, okay, that's great. Go there. Um, you know, it's, it's, we, we go back to the swimming analogy, you know, it's too often we're swimming in the shallow end of the pool. And how do you move yourself over into the deeper end of the pool? And sometimes, you know, the shallow end of the pool builds your confidence. But there is no difference from a skill set of swimming in the shallow end than the deep end. It's all in your head. Um, and, and you get that confidence in the shallow end of the pool. And then once you've got that confidence, you know, if, if you've got kids, you know, I've got two kids and I've taught them how to swim and my wife's taught them how to swim. It's like you, you work in the shallow end and then eventually you push them into the deep end and they may not want to go into the deep end, but they realize that their feet are kicking. And it's like, I can, I, I can do this. And I think that's what we have to kind of occasionally do with the people that work for us. It's like, let's, let's go into the deep end for a little bit. Um, and, and see how it is out there. How do you prepare them for when they're, when, when you push them into the deep end and you know, the struggle's coming, how do you prepare them to be ready to struggle and not go, this was a mistake, and pull the plug and back out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, there's some people that they just, they, they will jump into the deep end. And so, I mean, you have to understand kind of every, every person. I mean, I, I, have, I have two boys, and, and one of them will jump into the deep end automatically. 
and the other one will will start in the shallow end and kind of hang there and eventually get there. Um, you know, my my wife and I about well, five years ago, as of yesterday, five years ago, as of yesterday, we we left and took our two boys. They were nine and eleven around the world, and we traveled for a year. And one kid was so excited, and the other one, you know, the nine year old, like eh, I don't really want to go. And and part of it, it's like no, we're going to kind of push you into it, and we know you can do it, and you will be fine. And and he did. He survived, and now he loves to travel. And so how do you do that same thing with the people that work for you is, is knowing how far can you push them? You know, sometimes they may not recognize their capability. And sometimes just by saying, you know, I have confidence that you can go swim in the deep end will, will go a long way because they may be lacking the confidence because they haven't been swimming enough in the shallow end to build that confidence up. But you have seen you've seen the times that they have swam in the, sh the shallow end and you know, it's like, no, they, yeah, they know how to do it. It's like, get out of the shallow end, go in the deep end. So part of it is a leader. I think we have to, we have to recognize what the capabilities are and, you know, Scott's capabilities may be very different than your capabilities, Abby, um, or your comfort. I mean, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people who started their own business. And so they had a high level, they started off with a high level of discomfort. Um, the big part of iterate is, is working your way up, increasing your level of discomfort. So you, you, you start off small, you get that resilience, and then you kind of get stronger. I mean, I, I did a pod, uh, a a short recording um, for NPR uh, middle of the pandemic, and you know every one of my friends was complaining about how oh you know kids going to school they're going to lose so much learning it's going to be terrible their math skills are dropping down, and I talked about how you know the silver lining of this pandemic is you know as as people who hire you know as as people who hire people. We often look for people that are good with or resilient and can manage change. And, and my whole view was Microsoft Word is going to fix that spelling error of the kids that don't learn it you know, this year, or, or Microsoft Excel is going to fix that, you know, calculate that problem. But what these kids learn, and, and, and I, even me as an adult learned, is we learn to be more resilient over these last couple of years and more flexible. And so... Every type, you know, every type of situation you put yourself, you get a little, a little bit stronger. And so, you know, back to that kind of original point is how do you, how do you get yourself out there and build a little bit more, build that resilience? So then the next time you do it, you build it a little bit more. You know, you don't start off jumping off the high, the, you know, the 40 meter high dive. You start off, you know, jumping off the side of the pool and then you work your way to the three foot and then five foot and you work your way up. It's the same with resilience. It's the same with risk and kind of managing all that stuff. Start off small and work your way up. Still a lot of learning in jumping off that 40 foot high dive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you, when uh, I hit the water and go, oh, is. that was dumb. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to do yeah. that again. Or you know what I'm saying? There's still learning there. <laughs> Yeah, you learn it. You learn. You, you learn. It's like you jump into off the side of the pool, and it's like, okay, that went well. I'm going to go jump three feet, 
and you jump off three feet and you kind of come in a little sideways and it hurts your back. It's like, okay, let me work on getting straight. And then you go to five feet. And then so, yeah, if you jump off and do that on the 40 meter, um, you know, I don't know if 40 meters, the, the dive, not a diver. So you, you go sideways on a, on, on a something that high, it's going to be painful. Figure that out on the lower sides. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that advice. I think it's great. Um, and the, th the throughput for me is this opportunity to learn, right? So, and I, and I love what you had to say about being nervous because I hear it all the time. Oh, this makes me nervous. Now I'm going to come back and say, well, that's good. Let, let's you focus in on that. Oh, what's the worst that can happen? Well, we fail and we learn and we get better, right? And I feel like that mindset of it's so, and, and by the way, that's hard, right? We got to create a culture where failing is, is okay. And, and learning is okay and getting better is okay. Um, cause all too often I feel like we're just turning that crank. We're going to go from one opportunity to the next opportunity. And we're not taking that time to step back and say, what, what did we learn? How do we get better here? That, that, that gap I feel is a bigger gap, but yeah, you know, no, I, I, I agree. I, I, it reminds me of one of the, one of the founders of the company, one of the companies I, or one of the founders I talked to. Um, he is, he's a really good skier. So we sold his company for a couple billion dollars and now he just, he skis all over the place and he's really good. And I spoke to him and I also spoke to his ski coach, who's a professional, uh, ski instructor. And both of them said something similar as they said, when you're standing at the top of the mountain and you're looking down the cornice and it's really steep, there's a lot of fear there. And often what we think about is we think about what is the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario often involves death, complete annihilation, failure of the business, loss of everything. That is the worst case scenario. Those um, do sound bad. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and, and they, they, they are bad. <laughs> and you don't want that to happen. Um, but he goes, a lot of things must go wrong. It's not just one thing that goes wrong, but a lot of things must go wrong for that to happen. And we focus on the worst case scenario where more realistically, we should probably focus on what is the realistic worst case scenario? What could realistically happen? Um, because that is, that is where we can spend our time. Now, granted, you have to you know, there are times you have to think about that worst case scenario. Um, but most of the time, we probably only have to think of the, the, the realistic worst case scenario because that worst case scenario rarely will happen. To that point, can we talk about how that training, that dedication, that getting up every day and running the miles you have to run, how those elements ensure that that house of cards situation is less likely? Yeah. So. When you have to get up, so I, I did a 200 mile, 205 mile run. So that's eight marathons back to back around Lake Tahoe, which is, you know, it, it, it's a, one of the largest lakes in um, the United States. And it just, the lake around is set about 72 miles. We're running up in the uh, kind of the, the hills. So anywhere from five to 10,000 feet of elevation. And something's going to go wrong. 
you're going to you're going to trip you're you know something's going to happen and so what you want to do is during your training during the iterate part is experience those painful things so when it happens on course you can say oh you know i've experienced this i know what it's like i can get through it and 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 one example you know, part one of the things i had to do is I had to run, um, as part of my training, I had to do four 30-mile runs over the course of four days. So Sunday, I would get up early in the morning, run 30 miles. Monday, I'd do the same. Tuesday, I'd do the same. And Wednesday, I'd do the same. So 120 miles in four days. And you're going to experience all sorts of, of problems. Um, but you're in a, a, you're close to home. You can fix them. Um, and, and so that allows you to be more successful when you get on course, you know, another, I remember another time it was three in the morning and I had to get, get up and run. I was going to, I had to run like a marathon, just do a, a training run and then be back for one of my kids games. And, and I got up and it was raining and I thought, Oh, I don't want to run. You know, I could stay in bed. It'd be much nicer, but I thought. If I get up and I run now, when it's raining now, that if it happens on course, I can say, I've, I know what it's like to be having to be, do this. And I would tell you 50 hours into the run, the Tahoe 200 run I did, it started to rain. And what went through my head was, I've done this before and I can I can do it. So that's why you get up at three in the morning and you run in the rain and you don't stay in bed because when it happens in the real situation, you're prepared for it. And so how do you, and, and on a work situation, you know, I remember early on in my career, I, uh, um, I was, I was starting to work on my budgeting, the ability to budget and, and my, my function, you know, the company didn't focus a lot on budgeting. And I thought, eventually the company will, the market will turn and they're going to require us all to have a good budget. And I thought, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to really get good at budgeting because even though it's not required, it will be soon. And when it is required, I want to be good at it. And so work on it when the risks are low and you don't, and you know, whether you fail, it's not that big of a deal. So getting excited about opportunities that aren't going to be great is something you would recommend, like. Um, I know Jocko says, uh, embrace the suck. Like this is going to suck. So let, <laughs> let's go in here. Let's, let's do it. Right. You, your book is called Epic Performance. Um, as we start to wind things down, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the book, wh why you wrote it, why you feel it's important and, and any and other things that you may want to make sure you leave with our audience today. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Abby. Yeah. I, uh, I, I remember I was probably about 20 and I wrote down kind of a, a life list of things I wanted to do. And I remember writing down, write a book. And, you know, at the time I didn't have enough knowledge or anything worthy to say to write a book, but it was always one of these lifelong goals. And after completing a lot of these endurance events, I thought, it's like, what is it that gets me to that finish line? And, and maybe I now have something to say. And I wanted to go out and learn from a hundred other people as well. And so the, the, the full name, full title of the book is Epic Performance Lessons from a Hundred Executives and Endurance a Endurance Athletes on Reaching Your Peak. Um, and so as I was 
finishing a 300 mile one day bike ride and kind of like, and I earlier in the day, I'd seen somebody die on the side of the road and I had crashed with another bike. And so it was a hard ride. And I thought, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm 25 miles from the end of, I'm going to finish it. And I always thought that would be the, the, the ride that would take me to the limit. And I realized, you know, we put these limits in our head and they, they may hold us back. And so I wanted to write the book that say, don't let those limits hold you back. And, you know, how do you push yourself beyond what your perceived capabilities are? So it, it comes out August 16th. Um, it is, it's been something that I've been working on for several years. And there've been days when it's like, oh, I don't want to write anymore. And it's like, it had to persevere. So I, I had to use the kind of epic performance model in writing the book, especially on the perseverance part. And it's like, how do you, you got to keep going, Brian, and think about why are you doing this? Remember when you were 20 and you wrote that list down and, and how it'll, um, and you know, how you got to just keep going. So I, I used many of the lessons I talked about in order to get the book, book done. All right, Brian. Thanks so much for being on. Um, really inspiring stuff. If you could do me a favor, give our audience plenty of ways that they can connect with you, sir. All right, go to epicperformances.com. Um, you, can, you can send me an email at brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at epicperformances.com. Um, you can go on, connect with me on LinkedIn. So just look for Brian Gillette, and it's the B-R-Y-A-N, and you should be able to find me. And, um, or you can see the book on amazon.com. It's up, up on Amazon now for pre-order, but comes out August uh, 16th. All right, well, thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Abby. Yes, Scott. Could you do us a favor? Could you let our audience know how they can connect with us? Yeah, absolutely. We love hearing from you guys. We read all your emails. We love when you ping us on social. So if you want to reach out to us, you can email us at learningnerdscast at gmail.com. You can email questions, suggestions, ideas. If you want to join the show, please let us know. We're open to hearing it. Um, we're also on Facebook at Learning Nerds, or you can find us at LinkedIn, same at Learning Nerds. And we can't wait to hear from you. Thanks, Abby. Okay, folks, you do me a favor. Could you go ahead and hit that subscribe button? Share this show out with your friends. Um, do me a favor, you know, email us. But also, if you're listening to the show on iTunes or, you know, any kind of podcatcher, leave us a review. We'd love to hear how we can improve, how we can get better. And it helps get our message out to more people like yourself. So with that, I'm Scott. I'm Abby. And I'm Brian. And we're your fabulous learning nerds. And we are out. Thanks for listening to the Fabulous Learning Nerds. You know, there are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment of offerings. If you're, if you're thinking of giving it a try, if you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com BE.